In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Let's try to follow Jesus into a crowd of people. A lot of times in the Gospels we find Jesus alone, isolated, and sometimes praying with others or doing different things. But today we want to focus our attention on the Gospel of Mark and a scene where Jesus is in the midst of people coming and going, and, and in particular, bringing little children to him. St. Mark tells us people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. I'd like for us to try to just focus our attention on this phrase, in order that he might touch them this desire for contact with Jesus. A desire on the part of these fathers and mothers who were bringing their infants and their toddlers and the small children to be touched by Jesus, to have that contact with him. The desire on the part of some of those children themselves reaching out, maybe from their mother's arms or toddlers leaving their father's hands and running towards Jesus with a smile on their faith. We want to, to contemplate that desire with contact with Jesus. Because desire is contagious, really. You know? And you and I pick up desires for all sorts of things during the week. Desires for status, desires for attention, for appreciation to be noticed, desires for success, for achievement, all the sorts of things that swirl around us. Therefore, it's important that in times like this, times where we are making an effort to put our attention in the life of Jesus, that we allow ourselves, in a certain sense, to catch this desire, the desire for contact with him. And it, this is a big point, and it, I'm, I was kind of struggling. I don't know how else to put it into words, this desire for contact with Jesus, except to suggest that you just mull it over as the attitude that you can foster and need to foster in reference to him. Lord, I don't want to think about you. I don't want to just learn more about you. I want to meet you. I want to get out of my head. I don't want to be a prisoner of my own impression and feelings. I want to step beyond that into the vast perspective and horizon of meeting you. And to meet him, to just be with him, to be loved by him, to love him back. There's no further goal in friendship, in love. As soon as you're 
talking to a friend and engaged in that intimacy and that conversation and you're loving them with your service, you're, you're already there. That's what you're seeking. That's the goal. You're experiencing it in that moment. There's nothing else beyond it. You know? And in a similar way, that's our highest aspiration in personal prayer. To have contact with Him. Not, you know, I want to pray so that I can be stronger. I want to pray so that I can be better. I want to pray so that I can achieve all these secondary goals. Those things can happen. We do grow in, in certain virtues and we can be more generous to other people. And those are effects. But the main thing we want is to simply have contact with him. And what, is, what does contact with him mean? I'm sorry, you have to fill in that blank. No one else can do it. And no one else will do it as well as you will do it if you just simply right now in your prayer have a desire for it and the confidence that as a loving father, he will not pull back. He's not playing hide-and-go-seek. He's not being coy. They brought the small children in order that he might touch them. But the disciples spoke sternly to them, chased them away, the disciples. Now, I think if we want to be fair, we shouldn't imagine that the reason that the, the disciples are chasing these kids away and telling them, you know, there's no time for this, it's not because they were ogres or cranky old men who hated kids. I think it's for the very simple reason that they were busy. They're busy, They're trying to get things done, trying to be efficient. I think it's not only the most likely reason why they saw these kids as a nuisance and a bother, and let's get them out of the way, but it's also something that, that is very helpful for you and I to consider. Because I would say the great majority of the time, the reason why we don't actually love others as Christ loves us is because we're busy. When I say busy, I mean that not like objective busyness, but you know, the kind of stuff where we're just busy in our own heads and we feel like we're just overwhelmed and we're flailing about and I've got this and the other and you know, we're just spinning on the inside. That busyness. And when we're busy like that, we, instead of listening to people and looking them in the eye, we look past them or we glance at our phone while they're talking to us. Instead of actually encountering, finding time to meet with a friend, to talk to somebody, to finish something well, we rush past it because we feel that there's not enough time. It was as simple as this. The reason why there was no time for these kids and get them out of the way because they just had this sense of busyness. But Christ, who was actually achieving so much more in terms of uh, work and meeting people and healings and encounters and anything the apostles were capable of on their own nevertheless always had time for people love was what was driving him not an anxious nervous kind of itch to do more things Lord help us we ask you now in our prayer to not be blinded by busyness Ask him now, in the accompanied silence of your prayer, 
for a little bit more peace. Peace that's a gift from Him. And peace not to just feel really zen and chilled for yourself, but peace so that you can actually be alive to other people, forgetting about yourself, sacrificing for them, because that's an engaged life. That's a life worth living. It's the life that Christ has redeemed us to live. But when Jesus saw this, St. Mark tells us, when he saw that the disciples were chasing the children away and telling the parents to stop bothering and trying to put order in the circumstance instead of enjoying the chaos of the kids. Because when everyone with families, there's always a certain degree of chaos. Right? Instead of enjoying that and finding that, they were trying to, to put it all in its place. And St. Mark says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was indignant. I was reading a commentator on the Gospel of Mark, and he says, he just pointed out that this is the only time in the New Testament that we see Jesus express the emotion of being indignant. Indignant. What does it mean to be indignant? I was thinking about this. I didn't actually go to the dictionary and look it up. That probably would have been the easiest thing. But I think indignant is the kind of emotion that I would feel if I got on a bus and a 17-year-old boy with ear pods on and listening to music and a big sandwich and swilling a big thing of Coca-Cola, sat down in the only available seat right in front of a woman who was nine months pregnant, didn't let her sit down, right? I would feel indignant, <laughs> you know? How could you be so blind? How could you be so inconsiderate? And part of it being indignant is just frustrated at the fact that, I mean, where would I even start explaining to you why what you did was completely out of place? It should just be obvious that the logical thing would be to let her have your seat. And Jesus is indignant because, again, so many times explaining to them through his example, through his complete self-giving, his service, talking to them about who shall be first in the kingdom. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be the least. You need to serve others. He's indignant because he's, they're not seeing. Now, in saying all of this about Jesus being indignant, we're gonna, he gives the reason why, and that's what we want to spend the, the major part of our prayer, those reasons why Jesus gets upset. But I just want to come back, and, and I know I mention this a lot when we try to contemplate Jesus' life in the Gospels, just the fact of his emotions. Because when we see in the Gospels Jesus having emotional reactions to things, those emotions that we see in Jesus are privileged windows into the mystery of God's heart. What do I mean by that? Well, you and I understand emotions because we have them. We experience them, and actually they're a pretty significant part of our life. But God, in his perfection, his simplicity, this absolute self-possession of being <coughs> pure being, we really don't get that. <laughs> it's hard for us to grasp. But since God 
perfectly expresses himself in the humanity of Jesus, in his, in his body, in his personality, in his expressions. Those, all those different reactions, his joy, his sadness, his anger, all of those things are different ways of expressing the bottomless riches of God. So it's fruitful for us to pray about it. And believe that when we're seeing why Jesus gets indignant and, and what that means, that we're learning something about God. And we're learning something about God so that we can trust him, so that we can love him. So we see why Jesus got indignant. Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Truly, I tell you. This is a solemn declaration. In other words, this is the way Jesus wants to get their attention. He wants to get our attention. So as to say, look, this isn't a passing comment. This is something very serious. You need to reflect on it, absorb it, and really assimilate it into your life. Solemnly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. What could it mean to receive the kingdom of God as a little child? Well, first of all, when we hear this phrase, the kingdom of God, the first thing that might come to mind is heaven. <clears throat> what happens after we die, and maybe if we still kind of have some sort of vague idea of clouds and harps and angels and some kind of shiny lights. Well, there is a way in which God's kingdom is, has to do with the new heavens and the new earth, eternity. But let's just take it even at a more literal level. A kingdom has a king. You and I are very used to not living with kings, and we may actually have certain prejudices against kings <laughs> as a political structure, and I'm not here to talk about that. But the kingdom of God is very simply, and this is at the heart of Jesus' preaching, God the Father is king. What does that mean? It means that he protects me. He looks after us. He defends us. He is the source of all authority. We receive from him everything. Not like earthly kings who could maybe give you know, nice motorways and a certain political order and military defense. But the king, God as king means that from him we receive everything. So that's the first point. This is why in our prayer, and especially in Eucharistic adoration, we want to foster an attitude of adoration, precisely. Putting ourselves in, in prostration before the greatness and the magnitude of God. But Jesus, is, God is king, and then how would a child accept that kingdom? Well, he would accept it as a gift. 
as a gift, a gift that does not humiliate him. A gift that does not humiliate him. And that's hard for you and I, to not be humiliated by God's superiority, by having to receive from him, depending on him. Lord, help me to not be humiliated by having nothing, by needing to receive from you my purpose, who I am. And maybe this, this sounds a little bit theoretical to say that we rebel against this, because I don't think it ever kind of goes through our heads explicitly. I'm you know, rebelling against God because I don't want to receive my purpose from him. Kind of the way we do experience it is, you know, I just kind of want to do what I want. And, and anyone asking me, you know, saying, you know, God having a claim on me just makes me feel uncomfortable or just, I don't know, or I just look the other way or I don't want to deal with that or I don't want to face that. To treat God as an optional. I think that's the most classic and typical way that we don't accept him as a child accepts the kingdom of God. God is just optional. A hobby, if I can even be so f flippant, you know? Oh yeah, I'll pray, you know, I'll pray, but I, you know, I also do some exercise and I'm, you know, I'm kind of into Pilates and, you know, it's kind of things that I do, but, you know, just kind of a lifestyle choice rather than a recognition of truth. Receiving, so receiving the kingdom as a child means receiving it as a gift, something that I didn't deserve, something that I can't earn, something that I can only hold out and say, Lord, your forgiveness, your mercy, who you are, I receive it as a gift. Receiving the kingdom as a child also means, and, and this is perhaps easier for us to grasp, believing with absolute confidence in the goodness of God as a father. He wants what is best for me. He will bring me to true life and he is with me at every moment. Yet to really believe in God's goodness. And that can be hard sometimes because maybe we've had experiences in our life that weren't so good. We've suffered. We've seen horrible things happen to other people. And maybe as we suffered those things, we were praying and we might even, where was God in that? How could he have allowed that to happen if he's so good and loving? Why didn't he protect me? Why didn't he protect that other person? And those are questions that do not have easy, rational answers. They're questions that we can only respond to in faith, the faith of a child because of Jesus' promise, because of what Jesus has said and done, I choose in my freedom to believe as a child believes, Lord, that you are a loving Father and that nothing is impossible to you. you know, this is how children believe. Normally, children look at adults, especially when they're very small, they look at adults as all-wise, incredibly strong, you know, typical thing, you know, a little boy thinks his dad is just like 
the Incredible Hulk. You know, he's just incredibly strong, and he can beat up. You know, I remember his typical thing. Maybe this is a very boy thing, right? Of typical thing of you know four and five year olds having arguments that, amongst each other of how strong their dad is. Like my dad could beat up your dad. Like that's the biggest insult you can put forward as a four year old, right? And because it's very important, they have this idea that dad is incredibly strong. Now we kind of laugh at this and we think it's kind of cute because we realize that it's actually very naive because their dad may actually be a very out of shape middle-aged man who is not strong at all and you know it, it's not true right but of course what Jesus is trying to get across to us is that while we may have been naive to think as small children that you know a parent or the adult who took care of us or whoever it was was incredibly strong and all-knowing. While it may have been naive to believe that, in fact, it may have not been true, with God, it is true. You see? And so the challenge for us is to have that childlike trust and confidence in God's wisdom, in His strength, but in unlimited strength. Everything is possible for him. That is accepting him as king. <coughs> and finally, just one last quality to mention here and for us to just pray about of what it means for us to try to receive the kingdom as a child does. Is for us to have a disposition, I'm about, just put it in this, this phrase, I don't know if it's the right way to put it, but a disposition of learning. Small children are, are very keen to learn and they're very willing to accept that they have to learn. And they're very open about their inabilities and their ineptitude. You know? One of the things that's very disarming about a small child is he just comes wandering in, you know, the parents are talking and he comes wandering in and he's covered in mud and he's just got his diaper on and his hair's a mess and fix me. You know? he just comes into the mother and he's not embarrassed of like, you know, he's not thinking, oh, I should be able to do this myself and I should be able to dress myself and make my dinner and do... No, he's very open about, I don't know how. This is what's, what can we do? How are we going to fix this? It's all on the table. Let's look at it. Teach me. I'd like to learn. In calling us to a Christian vocation, Jesus Christ is calling us to a very high ideal to love one another as he has loved us. To have absolute faith in the love and the mercy that God the Father has for each one of us. To try and transform our ordinary duties and our work into service for the good of society, for the good of other people, to turn it into prayer, something that builds up other people's lives. That is a very high ideal. But we need to receive that ideal as children, not as adults who would say, right, yeah, I accept that ideal and I hope I can be up to the mark. I hope I'm good enough. But rather as children. In other words, when I find it hard to pray, hard because I don't feel like it, Hard because I get distracted. Hard because I just feel kind of rotten, you know, because I've been kind of envious or I've had some other temptations or difficulties and I just don't feel that, in inverted commas, holy. 
Well, for us to have this attitude of a child saying, yep, that's me. That's me. Kind of, you know, chocolate smudges on the face. Kind of don't know, I'm babbling a little bit. But, Lord, teach, teach me. I want to try to talk to you. I want to make an effort. And I want to learn. Think about, for example, how do you react to those difficulties, having to make an effort in prayer, to seeing your own shortcomings, the way you feel insecure, maybe in certain social settings, your cowardice before others' people speaking badly of the faith or your beliefs and convictions, the way that we can value our own personal appearance in a disordinate way, all those sorts of things. Do I react to that saying, oh my God, let's sweep this under the rug, pretend it didn't happen, and I'll just push harder? Or in a childlike way, saying, Lord, here, this, this, is, this is me. Please heal me. Help me learn. Help me begin again. And I can start right now. And I have nothing to be ashamed of in that sense. Because, Lord, you know exactly who I am. And you love what you see. Because the beautiful part of how this scene ends is Jesus took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, Mark doesn't go on and on about that. But I think if we're trying to imagine that scene, we need to imagine Jesus enjoying being with those kids. Blessing them and just being with them in their joy and their, their possibility and how they can be growing and what he wants them to be and the life that they'll have. And that is how he looks at us. All we have to do to experience that, not just as something that you're hearing me say, but something you experience on your own, is that we have that humble willingness to show ourselves as we are. For example, in the Sacrament of Confession, it's one of those very real moments where all these ideas come together because I don't go to the Sacrament of Confession to kind of, you know, well, this is how good I'm doing, and look at me, and I did this, and well, I had you know, a couple mistakes, but those were just, you know, won't happen again. No, we go to the Sacrament of Confession. Yeah, Lord, uh, I'm a sinner come up short, but I'm a sinner who you love, who you've called. Help me to grow. And that's why I'm relying on the grace and a life that comes from this sacrament so that I can grow. And I want to see how I can grow, how I can learn, how I can improve. And that's what I find exciting about my Christian vocation. I'm not trying to keep up appearances and prove anything. I have the joyful realization that God is a loving Father who looks at me with unconditional delight and therefore I'm free to be fairly muddled and inept but committed with decisive, unshakable conviction that I want to try and love Him back the best that I can in this life and eternally in the next. Let's ask our Mother Mary that she intercede for us so that this attitude of a child grows in us. Because the more it grows in us, the more experience we will have of freedom. 
freedom. The freedom to explore the good that God is calling us to live in so many different areas of our life, in our work, in our friendships, in our life of prayer. And to explore that good without a fear of coming up short, without a fear of failure, worrying what others might think. It's always going to affect us a little bit. But the more we strive to receive his kingdom as children, the more those exterior pressures will affect us less and less. And we will have, in a limited way in this life, surely, but nevertheless in an important way, that wonderful experience those children had of contact with Jesus. A contact that gives life, a contact that liberates. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for